Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. This is Episode 10, Book 1, and I am your host, Catherine Lopez-Luker. Who wouldn't want to find buried treasure? Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn know there must be treasure around. It stands to reason. But when they get trapped in the old haunted house on Cardiff Hill, they wonder if the gold and silver they saw is worth their lives. Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer Chapter 27 About noon the next day, the boys arrived at the dead tree. They had come for their tools. Tom was impatient to go to the haunted house. Huck was measurably so also, but suddenly said, Looky here, Tom. Do you know what day this is? Tom mentally ran over the days of the week and then quickly lifted his eyes with a startled look in them. My, I never once thought of it, Huck. Well, I didn't neither, but all at once it popped on to me that it was Friday. Blame it. Body can't be too careful, Huck. We might have got into an awful scrape tackling such a thing on a Friday. Might. Better say we would. There's some lucky days, maybe, but Friday ain't. Any fool knows that. I don't reckon you was the first that found out, Huck. Well, I never said I was, did I? And Friday ain't all neither. I had a rotten bad dream last night. Dreamt about rats. No. Sure sign of trouble. Did they fight? No. Well, that's good, Huck. When they don't fight, it's only a sign there's trouble around, you know. All we got to do is look mighty sharp and keep out of it. We'll drop this thing for today and play. Do you know Robin Hood, Huck? No. Who's Robin Hood? Why, he was one of the greatest men that was ever in England, and the best. He was a robber. Cracky, I wished I was. Who did he rob? Only sheriffs and bishops and rich people and kings and such like. But he never bothered the poor. He loved them. He always divided up with them perfectly square. Well, he must have been a brick. I bet you he was, Huck. Oh, he was the noblest man that ever was. They ain't such men now, I can tell you. He could lick any man in England with one hand tied behind him and he could take his U-bow and plug a ten-cent piece every time, a mile and a half. What's a U-bow? I don't know. It's some kind of bow, of course. And if he hit that dime only on the edge, he could sit down and cry and curse, but we'll play Robin Hood. It's noble fun. I'll learn you. I'm agreed. So they played Robin Hood all the afternoon, now and then cast a yearning eye down upon the haunted house, and passing a remark about the morrow's prospects and possibilities there. As the sun began to sink into the west, they took their way homeward athwart the long shadows of the trees, and soon were buried from sight in the forests of Cardiff Hill. On Saturday, shortly after noon, the boys were at the dead tree again. They had a smoke and a chat in the shade, and then dug a little in their last hole, not with any great hope, but merely because Tom said there were so many cases where people had given up a treasure after getting down within six inches of it and then somebody else had come along and turned it up with a single thrust of a shovel. The thing failed this time, however. 
So the boys shouldered their tools and went away, feeling that they had not trifled with fortune, but had fulfilled all the requirements that belonged to the business of treasure hunting. When they reached the haunted house, there was something so weird and grisly about the dead silence that reigned there under the baking sun, and something so depressing about the loneliness and desolation of the place, that they were afraid for a moment to venture in. Then they crept to the door and took a trembling peep. They saw a weed-grown floorless room, unplastered, an ancient fireplace, vacant windows, a ruinous staircase, and here, there, and everywhere hung ragged and abandoned cobwebs. They presently entered softly, with quickened pulses talking in whispers, ears alert to catch the slightest sound, and muscles tense and ready for instant retreat. In a little while, familiarity modified their fears, and they gave the place a critical and interested examination, rather admiring their own boldness and wondering at it, too. Next, they wanted to look upstairs. This was something like cutting off retreat, but they got to daring each other, and of course, there could be but one result. They threw their tools into a corner and made the ascent. Up there were the same signs of decay. In one corner they found a closet that promised mystery, but the promise was a fraud. There was nothing in it. Their courage was up now and well in hand. They were about to go down and begin work when, Shh, said Tom. What is it? whispered Huck, blanching with fright. Shh, here, there, hear it? Oh, my, yes, let's run. Keep still, don't you budge, they're coming right toward the door. The boys stretched themselves upon the floor with their eyes to knot holes in the planking and lay waiting in a misery of fear. They've stopped. No, coming, here they are. Don't whisper another word, Huck. My goodness, I wish I was out of this. Two men entered. Each boy said to himself, There's the old deaf and dumb Spaniard that's been about town once or twice lately. Never saw the other man before. The other was a ragged, unkempt creature with nothing very pleasant in his face. The Spaniard was wrapped in a serape. He had bushy white whiskers, long white hair flowed from under his sombrero, and he wore green goggles. When they came in, the other was talking in a low voice. They sat down on the ground faced the door with their backs to the wall, and the speaker continued his remarks. His manner became less guarded, and his words more distinct as he proceeded. No, he said. I've thought it all over. I don't like it. It's dangerous. Dangerous, grunted the deaf and dumb Spaniard to the vast surprise of the boys. Milksop. This voice made the boys gasp and quake. It was Injun Joe's. There was silence for some time. Then Joe said, What's any more dangerous than the job up yonder, but nothing's come of it? That's different. Away up the river, so, and not another house about. Twon't ever be known that we tried, anyway, long as we didn't succeed. Well, what's more dangerous than coming here in the daytime? Anybody would suspicion that saw us. I know that, but there wasn't any places handy after that fool of a job. I want to quit this shanty. I wanted to yesterday. Only it wasn't any use trying to stir out of here with those infernal boys playing over there on the hill right in full view. Those infernal boys quaked again under the inspiration of this remark, and thought how lucky it was that they had remembered it was Friday and concluded to wait a day. They wished in their hearts they had waited a year. The two men got out some food and made a luncheon. After a long and thoughtful silence, Injun Joe said, 
Look here, lad. You go back up the river where you belong. Wait there till you hear from me. I'll take the chances on dropping into this town just once more for a look. We'll do that dangerous job after I've spied around a little and think things well for it. Then for Texas, we'll leg it together. This was satisfactory. Both men presently fell to yawning, and Injun Joe said, I'm dead for sleep. It's your turn to watch. He curled down in the weeds and soon began to snore. His comrade stirred him once or twice, and he became quiet. Presently the watcher began to nod. His head drooped lower and lower. Both men began to snore now. The boys drew a long, grateful breath. Tom whispered, Now's our chance. Come. Huck said, I can't. I can't. I'd die if they was to wake. Tom urged. Huck held back. At last, Tom rose slowly and softly and started alone. But the first step he made rung such a hideous creak from the crazy floor that he sank down almost dead with fright. He never made a second attempt. The boys lay there counting the dragging moments till it seemed to them that time must be done and eternity growing gray. And then they were grateful to note that at last the sun was setting. Now one snore ceased. Injun Joe sat up staring around, smiled grimly upon his comrade, whose head was drooping upon his knees, stirred him up with his foot and said, Here, you're a watchman, ain't you? All right, though nothing happened. My, have I been asleep? Oh, partly, partly. Nearly time for us to be moving, pard. What'll we do with what little swag we got? I don't know. Leave it here as we've always done, I reckon. No use to take it away till we start south. Six hundred and fifty in silver's something to carry. Well, all right. It won't matter to come here again. No, but I'd say come in the night as we used to do. It's better. Yes, but look here. It may be a good while before I get the right chance at that job. Accidents happen. Tained in such a very good place, we'll just regularly bury it, and bury it deep. Good idea, said the comrade, who walked across the room, knelt down, raised one of the rearward hearthstones, and took out a bag that jingled pleasantly. He subtracted from it twenty or thirty dollars for himself, and as much for Injun Joe, and passed the bag to the latter, who was on his knees in the corner now digging with his bowie knife. The boys forgot all their fears, all their miseries in an instant. With gloating eyes, they watched every movement. Luck! The splendor of it was beyond all imagination. Six hundred dollars was money enough to make half a dozen boys rich. Here was treasure hunting under the happiest auspices. There would not be any bothersome uncertainty as to where to dig. They nudged each other every moment, eloquent nudges, and easily understood, for they simply meant, Oh, but ain't you glad now we're here? Joe's knife struck something. Hello, he said. What is it? said his comrade. Half rotten plank? No, it's a box, I believe. Here, bear a hand and we'll see what it's here for. Never mind, I've broke a hole. He reached in his hand and drew it out. Man, it's money! The two men examined the handful of coins. They were gold. The boys above were as excited as themselves and as delighted. Joe's comrade said, We'll make quick work of this. There's an old rusty pick over among the weeds in the corner, the other side of the fireplace. I saw it a minute ago. He ran and brought the boys' pick and shovel. Injun Joe took the pick, looked it over critically, shook his head, muttered something to himself, 
and then began to use it. The box was soon unearthed. It was not very large. It was iron-bound and had been very strong before the slow years had injured it. The men contemplated the treasure a while in blissful silence. Pard, there's thousands of dollars here, said Injun Joe. It was always said that Morel's gang used around here one summer, the stranger observed. I know it, said Injun Joe, and this looks like it, I should say. Now you won't need to do that job. Injun Joe frowned, said he. You don't know me, at least you don't know all about that thing. Tain't a robbery altogether, it's revenge. And a wicked light flamed in his eyes. I'll need your help in it. When it's finished, then, Texas, go home to your nance and your kids, and stand by till you hear from me. Well, if you say so, what'll we do with this? Bury it again? Yes, ravishing delight overhead. No, by the great Sachem, no, profound distress overhead. I'd nearly forgot. That pick had fresh earth on it. The boys were sick with terror in a moment. What business has a pick and a shovel here? What business with fresh earth on them? Who brought them here? And where are they gone? Have you heard anybody? Seen anybody? What? Bury it again and leave them to come around and see the ground disturbed? Not exactly, not exactly. We'll take it to my den. Why, of course. Might have thought of that before. You mean number one? No, number two, under the cross. The other place is bad. Too common. All right. It's nearly dark enough to start. Injun Joe got up and went from window to window, cautiously peeping out. Presently he said, Who could have brought those tools here? Do you reckon they could be upstairs? The boy's breath forsook them. Injun Joe put his hand on his knife, halted a moment undecided, and then turned toward the stairway. The boys thought of the closet, but their strength was gone. The steps came creeping up the stairs, the intolerable distress of the situation woke the stricken resolution of the lads. They were about to spring for the closet when there was a crash of rotten timbers, and Injun Joe landed on the ground amid the debris of the ruined stairway. He gathered himself up cursing, and his comrade said, Well, now what's the use of all that if it's anybody and they're up there? Let them stay there. Who cares? If they want to jump down now and get into trouble, who objects? It'll be dark in fifteen minutes, and then let them follow us if they want to. I'm willing. In my opinion, whoever hove those things in here caught a sight of us and took us for ghosts or devils or something. I'll bet they're running yet. Joe grumbled a while, and then he agreed with his friend that what daylight was left ought to be economized in getting things ready for leaving. Shortly afterwards, they slipped out of the house in the deepening twilight and moved toward the river with their precious box. Tom and Huck rose up weak but vastly relieved, and stared after them through the chinks between the logs of the house. Follow? Not they. They were content to reach the ground again without broken necks and take the townward track over the hill. They did not talk much. They were much too absorbed in hating themselves, hating the ill luck that made them take the spade and pick there. But for that, Injun Joe never would have suspected. He would have hidden the silver with the gold, to wait there till his revenge was satisfied, and then he would have had the misfortune to find that money turn up missing. Bitter, bitter luck that the tools were ever brought there. They resolved to keep a lookout for that Spaniard when he should come to town spying out for his chances to do his revengeful job and follow him to number two, wherever that might be. Then a ghastly thought occurred to Tom. <gasps> revenge? What if he means us, Huck? 
Oh, don't, said Huck, nearly fainting. They talked it over, and as they entered the town, they agreed to believe that he might possibly mean somebody else, at least mean nobody but Tom, since only Tom had testified. Very, very small comfort it was to Tom to be alone in danger. Company would be a palpable improvement, he thought. Chapter 28 The Adventure of the Day mightily tormented Tom's dreams that night. Four times he had his hands on that rich treasure, and four times it wasted to nothing in his fingers as sleep forsook him, and wakefulness brought back the hard reality of his misfortune. As he lay in the early morning, recalling the incidents of his great adventure, he noticed that they seemed curiously subdued and far away, somewhat as if they had happened in another world, or in a time long gone by. Then it occurred to him that the great adventure itself must be a dream. There was one very strong argument in favor of this idea, namely, that the quantity of coin he had seen was too vast to be real. He had never seen as much as fifty dollars in one mass before, and he was like all boys of his age and station in life, in that he imagined that all references to hundreds and thousands were mere fanciful forms of speech, and that no such sums existed in the world. He had never supposed for a moment that so large a sum as a hundred dollars was to be found in actual money in anyone's possession. If his notions of hidden treasure had been analyzed, they would have been found to consist of a handful of real dimes and a bushel of vague, splendid, ungraspable ones. But the incidents of his adventure grew sensibly sharper and clearer under the attrition of thinking them over, and so he presently found himself leaning to the impression that the thing might not have been a dream after all. This uncertainty must be swept away. He would snatch a hurried breakfast and go out and find Huck. Huck was sitting on the gunwale of a flat boat, listlessly dangling his feet in the water and looking very melancholy. Tom concluded to let Huck lead up to the subject. If he did not do it, then the adventure would be proved to have been a dream. Hello, Huck. Hello yourself. Silence for a minute. Tom, if we'd a left the blame tools at the dead tree, we'd a got the money. Oh, ain't it awful? Taint a dream, then. Taint a dream. Somehow I most wish it was, dogged if I don't. What ain't a dream? Oh, that thing yesterday? I been half thinking it was. Dream? If them stairs hadn't broke down, you'd have seen how much dream it was. I've had dreams enough all night with that patch-eyed Spanish devil going for me all through him. Rot him? No, not rot him. Find him. Track the money. Tom, we'll never find him. A feller don't have only one chance for such a pile, and that one's lost. I'd feel mighty shaky if I was to see him anyway. Well, so'd I, but I'd like to see him anyway and track him out to his number two. Number two, yes, that's it. I've been thinking about that, but I can't make anything of it. What do you reckon it is? I don't know. It's too deep. Say, Huck, maybe it's the number of a house. Goody. No, Tom, that ain't it. If it is, it ain't in this one-horse town. They ain't no numbers here. Well, that's so. Let me think a minute. Here, it's the number of a room. In a tavern, you know. Well, that's the trick. They ain't only two taverns. We can find out quick. You stay here, Huck, till I come. Tom was off at once. He did not care to have Huck's company in public places. He was gone half an hour. He found out that in the best tavern, number two had long been occupied by a young lawyer, and was still so occupied. 
In the less ostentatious house, number two was a mystery. The tavern keeper's young son said it was kept locked all the time, and he never saw anybody go into it or come out of it except at night. He did not know any particular reason for this state of things. He had had some little curiosity, but was rather feeble and had made the most of the mystery by entertaining himself with the idea that that room was haunted. He'd noticed that there was a light in it the night before. That's what I found out, Huck. I reckon that's the very number two we're after. I reckon it is, Tom. Now what are you going to do? Let me think. Tom thought a long time, then he said, I'll tell you. The back door of that number two is the door that comes out into that little close alley between the tavern and the old rattletrap of a brick store. Now you get hold of all the door keys you can find, and I'll nip all of Auntie's, and the first dark night we'll go there and try him. And mind you keep a lookout for Injun Joe, because he said he was going to drop into town and spy around once more for a chance to get his revenge. If you see him, you just follow him. And if you don't go to that number two, that ain't the place. Lordy, I don't want to follow him by myself. Why, it'll be night. Sure, he might never see you. And if he did, maybe he'd never think anything. Well, if it's pretty dark, I reckon I'll track him. I don't know. I don't know. I'll try. You bet I'd follow him if it's dark, Huck. Why, he might have found out he couldn't get his revenge and be going right after that money. It's so, Tom, it's so. I'll follow him. I will, by jingles. Now you're talking. Don't you ever weaken, Huck. And I won't. Chapter 29 That night, Tom and Huck were ready for their adventure. They hung about the neighborhood of the tavern until after nine, one watching the alley at a distance, and the other the tavern door. Nobody entered the alley or left it. Nobody resembling the Spaniard entered or left the tavern door. The night promised to be a fair one, so Tom went home with the understanding that if a considerable degree of darkness came on, Huck was to come and meow, whereupon he would slip out and try the keys. But the night remained clear, and Huck closed his watch and retired to bed in an empty sugar hogshead about twelve. Tuesday the boys had the same ill luck, also Wednesday, but Thursday night promised better. Tom slipped out in good season with his aunt's old tin lantern and a large towel to blindfold it with. He hid the lantern in Huck's sugar hog's head, and the watch began. An hour before midnight, the tavern closed up and its lights, the only ones thereabouts, were put out. No Spaniard had been seen. Nobody had entered or left the alley. Everything was auspicious. The blackness of darkness reigned. The perfect stillness was interrupted only by occasional mutterings of distant thunder. Tom got his lantern, lit it in the hogshead, wrapped it closely in the towel, and the two adventurers crept in the gloom toward the tavern. Huck stood sentry and Tom felt his way into the alley. Then there was a season of waiting anxiety that weighed upon Huck's spirits like a mountain. He began to wish he could see a flash from the lantern. It would frighten him, but it would at least tell him that Tom was alive yet. It seemed hours since Tom had disappeared. Surely he must have fainted. Maybe he was dead. Maybe his heart had burst under terror and excitement. In his uneasiness, Huck found himself drawing closer and closer to the alley, fearing all sorts of dreadful things and momentarily expecting some catastrophe to happen that would take away his breath. There was not much to take away, for he seemed only able to inhale it by thimblefuls. 
and his heart would soon wear itself out the way it was beating. Suddenly there was a flash of light, and Tom came tearing by him. Run, he said, run for your life. He needn't have repeated it. Once was enough. Huck was making some thirty or forty miles an hour before the repetition was uttered. The boys never stopped till they reached the shed of a deserted slaughterhouse at the lower end of the village. Just as they got within the shelter, the storm burst, and the rain poured down. As soon as Tom got his breath, he said, Huck, it was awful. I tried two of the keys just as soft as I could, but they seemed to make such a power of racket that I couldn't hardly get my breath. I was so scared they wouldn't turn in the lock either. Well, without noticing what I was doing, I took a hold of the knob and open comes the door. It wasn't locked. I hopped in and shook off the towel and great Caesar's ghost. What did you see, Tom? Huck, I almost stepped on Injun Joe's hand. No. Yes, he was lying there sound asleep on the floor with his old eye patch on his eye and his arms spread out. Oh, Lord, what did you do? Did he wake up? No, never budged. Drunk, I reckon. I just grabbed that towel and started. I'd have never thought of that towel, I bet. Well, I would. My aunt would make me mighty sick if I lost it. Say, Tom, did you see that box? Huck, I didn't wait to look around. I didn't see the box. I didn't see the cross. I didn't see anything but a bottle and a tin cup on the floor by Injun Joe. Yes, and I saw two barrels and lots more bottles in the room. Don't you see now what's the matter with the haunted room? How? Why, it's haunted with whiskey. Maybe all the temperance taverns have got a haunted room. Hey, Huck. Well, I reckon maybe that's so. Who'd have thought of such a thing? But say, Tom, now's a mighty good time to get that box if Injun Joe's drunk. It is that. You try it. Huck shuddered. Well, no, I reckon not. And I reckon not, Huck. Only one bottle alongside of Injun Joe ain't enough. If there'd have been three, he'd be drunk enough and I'd do it. There was a long pause for reflection, and then Tom said, Looky here, Huck. Let's not try that thing any more till we know Injun Joe's not in there. It's too scary. Now if we watch every night, we'll be dead sure to see him go out sometime or other. Then we'll snatch that box quicker in lightning. Well, I'm agreed. I'll watch the whole night long, and I'll do it every night, too, if you'll do the other part of the job. All right, I will. All you gotta do is trot up Hooper Street a block and meow, and if I'm asleep... You throw some gravel at the window and that'll fetch me. Agreed, and good as wheat. Now, Huck, the storm's over and I'll go home. It'll begin to be daylight in a couple of hours. You go back and watch that long, will you? I said I would, Tom, and I will. I'll haunt that tavern every night for a year. I'll sleep all day and I'll stand watch at night. That's all right. Where are you going to sleep? In Ben Rogers' hayloft. He lets me. Well, if I don't want you around in the daytime, Huck, I'll let you sleep. I won't come bothering around. Anytime you see something's up in the night, just skip right around and meow. This is your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to the adventures of Tom Sawyer. You can find a link to our podcast on the Marshall Public Library webpage, www.marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.